Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. When I was a teenager and music was still on cassettes, a mixtape was an act of love. The selection and sequence of songs were a kind of message to the listener that left plenty of space for their own thoughts and feelings. Back in June, Think Again hit its fourth year and its 200th show, and it feels like the right time to take a step back and revisit some of the places the conversation has gone this past year. I'm intuitive rather than strategic about choosing guests for the show and books to read. When it works, it's an art rather than a science. And as with any art, themes emerge and recur and combine in different guises. In this episode, I'm putting together some of my favorite moments of 2019, strung together with minimal interruption from me. So kick back and enjoy this eclectic collection, and feel free to write me through my website, jasongotts.com, and let me know your thoughts, feelings, insights, or send me a mixtape of your own. Joseph Goldstein is a legendary American Buddhist teacher whose Dharma talks and guided meditations I've been a fan of for over a decade. He's also the author of the wonderful book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. I've worked a lot with fear in my own practice. I know it really well because it was, it was the main difficult emotion I had to deal with and over years. So one of the great lessons was that it's okay to feel fear. Mm. It's, it's unpleasant. It's not like we would choose to feel it, but if it's there, it's okay to feel it even if it's unpleasant. So this is one of the deepest aspects of our conditioning. We like what's pleasant and we don't like what's unpleasant. I think I've got it with anger. I get angry a lot and I like refuse to admit that I actually ever get angry. But you know, you can get confused if you then think that, well, then the thing is to express the anger and just be, no, you know. Yeah, like, so, th so this is an important point. Like, like catharsis, you yeah. know, like. <laughs> mostly, mostly people view that situation in one of two ways. They think they either have to express it or suppress it. But neither of those two are the most skillful responses. That actually it's possible to open to it, to feel it, without expressing it, but without stuffing it. See it you're actually it is, yeah. open and you're feeling, and it, it is just a passing emotion. <laughs> Meditation on the breath is, is a common place to start. And it's how I started mm -hmm. in India. And when I started, I had zero concentration. I was not one of these people. There, are a few, there aren't many, but there are some people who just, for whatever reason, are naturally concentrated. They sit down, boom, yeah, they're there. My <laughs> mind was not like that at all. I studied philosophy in college. I loved to think. So I would be in India in Bodh Gaya doing my practice, thinking away and loving it. I was having a very good time. But I also did realize that I was supposed to be on the breath. <laughs> And then the following year, I came back and I told Manindraji that I felt I wanted to do the metta practice, the loving kindness practice, intensively. Mm -hmm. okay. So I did that for about two months. It was very interesting because doing the metta, it was my first experience of developing concentration mm -hmm. through doing the metta, not mm -hmm. on the breath. So I that see. worked better for me. And it was sometime during there, as I was just repeating the metta phrases, my mind got really concentrated and happy from the concentration, and I had the thought, oh, this is why people like to meditate. <laughs> because before that, it had been a struggle. 
So we can come in. Yes, we need to develop concentration in one way or another. And not a, not a super yogi flying through the air amount. Right. Just enough so our minds are not continually wandering. But it can be done in a lot of different ways. How do I even ask this? Well, I want to ask you, you've been practicing for how many years? Over 50. Over 50. So where, where do you feel like you are at now versus where you were at when you started? Right. So I get this question a lot. It's taken me a while to figure out how to answer this. How to answer this. So the way, the way I think of it now and answer it now is there is a spectrum of awakening or a spectrum of enlightenment starting from being completely deluded right. <laughs> to fully awakened, right. the Buddha. I'm somewhere along the spectrum. <laughs> and I'm further along the spectrum than I was when I started. So you and can feel that and you can see that oh, in, in your life. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And sometimes it revolves around very specific dramatic experiences. Mm. Sometimes it revolves around just the wearing away or the diminishing of unwholesome patterns right. that you've seen for so long, but through mindfulness and through the meditation, say, okay, I don't have to, I don't Do have to engage. Yeah. yeah. And so we see the lightning take place. So sometimes people ask me, sort of to define enlightenment, you know, and there, there are many ways to do it, but one of my favorites, although it's not, the, it's not the most philosophically rigorous, I see enlightenment as lightening up, where we just lighten up, yeah. you know, our minds lighten up, so we're not kind of enmeshed in those patterns that bring us down, that, that right. cause suffering for ourselves or others. Benjamin Dreyer is a funny, funny man. He's the copy chief of Random House and the author of Dreyer's English. We nerded out with great delight on the joys of the English language. All right. So, for instance, if you have a if you have a rough spot on your finger, one mm. of those one of those rough hard patches. Okay. How do you spell that? Callus. Okay. Yes. So I'm going to say C A L L U S. Yes. And then it's O U S if I'm being cruel and rough and. Exactly. I mean, yeah. C a l l u s is the noun, and C a l l o u s is the is the adjective. Yes. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Um, <laughs> the letter paper that you write on. Oh sure. Okay. That one was drilled into me by my my very grammatically precise mother. Stationary is with an e if you're writing, uh, and with an a if you're standing still. Yes. Um, and to trot out the joke that I always trot out about people trying to remember. Oh, for instance, people trying to remember the difference between supine and prone. Ooh, that that I'm supine and prone. Okay, first of all, both of those are probably overused in erotic novels. I'm yes. imagining. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but I don't. I don't know. Yes. Um, supine is lying on your back. Prone is lying on your stomach. Okay. Almost everybody will reach for the word prone for anybody who's lying down. Uh, the way you're supposed to remember which one is which is that if you are lying supine, you are lying on your spine. Uh, but my ongoing joke is that the problem with mnemonic devices for spelling is I can't remember them. 
There's all these headlines that say things like 10 reasons you should actually stop X, Y, and Z. And there it starts to feel really precious and twee. And pointless. Twee is one of my favorite <laughs> Twee words. is a good word. Twee is one of my favorite <laughs> words. I remember the first time I encountered the word twee uh, in some book back in the maybe 1980s. And if I recall correctly, and when I don't recall things correctly, I just make them up. <laughs> um, probably it was being used in reference to a certain kind of intimate little British musical theater endeavor. Okay. Okay. But the thing is, I remember not knowing the word. I'd never seen it before. And I remember going to my dictionary and looking it up and it wasn't there. It was still a British word. Mm. And it did eventually, as we as we well know, it made its way over here. And, and really, it's got its green card well in hand. We need a word for whatever kind of sort of onomatopoeia that is. The word twee Sounds like captures twee. the feeling of tweeness, yes. but it's not a not onomatopoeia exactly. No, but it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an exquisite <laughs> word. And I think one thing that's very important for all writers is if you've tied yourself up into some sort of grammatical syntactical knot and you can't figure out whether something is correct or not, drop the issue of whether it's correct or not and rewrite the sentence in a way that you're comfortable with. Walk away from the knot. Don't try to untie it. Write at your own level. I mean, write with aspiration, but write the way you know how to write. Aeneas Mitchell is a devastatingly brilliant singer-songwriter and the creator of Town, a musical based on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, which won 14 Tony Awards this past year on Broadway. A lot of songs of yours that have these kind of like haunting melodic breaks in them, I don't, you know, like Any Way the Wind Blows has that sort of melody, which is, it sounds to me like if the wind could sing, that's, that's what it would sing. Oh, that's so um, cool. Any way the wind blows. There's a bunch of them where I hear where there are these they're in the realm of nursery rhyme, but so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah. I love that you say that. Like I I mean melodies are so strange because there's not that many notes in the scale. Do you know what I mean? There's not, there's not that many notes that could happen. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. And right. it sort of feels like... Unless you have a sitar, maybe. Then. Yeah, right. You could get into some alternate <laughs> scales and stuff. But it's almost like it's enough. We have 11 notes and it's enough. And for me, like the, the melodic stuff is always really feels intuitive. And it feels like it's... It comes out of the ground the way that folk music does, you know? Mm. I like that you said nursery rhyme because I think there is this sort of hazy middle ground between nursery rhyme and folk song. I love looking at the entire body of work of an artist who's been around for a long time, right. you know? Someone like Bruce Springsteen or Leonard Cohen or Lucinda Williams. I love to think that someone could continue to come sort of in and out of contact with like the muse or or the moment, the cultural moment, you know, right. at different times in their life, and that you could experience the breadth of their thing and love them for continuing to make the effort. I feel this way about live performing. There's so many that goes on in the, your mind, and it's like, oh God, do they like it? I don't know. Does 
is the sound weird? You know, right, right, so, right, like right. what's happening? Am I going to remember the next chord? You know, did I say something charming in between, before that song? <laughs> All that stuff. But then there's also sometimes that moment where, which I've witnessed in other performers and, I, and I've had the experience myself of like, oh my God, I'm just channeling this. Like I'm just standing here and the music is coming through me. And the powerful thing I think about seeing an artist is not that they come out there and they're perfect from moment one to moment to the end of the show. Like I'm not actually interested in perfection. Right. I love to see someone come out there and be awkward and do their thing and they clear their throat and it's out of tune and whatever. And then they come into their powers in a moment and then it goes away. And for me, like even 20 seconds of that, if that happened in a show, if I felt like I came into the powers for 20 seconds, that is a good show. Orpheus's failure at the end. It's interesting that he's a hero for all of us. And he's like, theaters all over the world named the Orpheum or right, whatever, right. even though he's not the hero who won. He has remained so important to us for all time, even though he doesn't win at the end. He's not a hero like Odysseus who comes home or, you right. know, but it's because he tried the impossible thing right. that we revere him. And I guess it does have to do with what you were talking about. Like what, what can we expect from artists? What can we expect from art and music? To what extent can those things change the world? Or not. And um, Billy Bragg started covering one of the songs from Hadestown several years ago, this song, Why We Build the Wall. Right. So he came to the premiere of the show in London. And I had a good hang with him after. And he was saying, he was talking about how he had often asked himself, could a song change the world? Could my songs change the world? Right. You know, right. And that at a certain point, he had decided, no, they can't. But the audience members might. That the song could yeah. move someone in the audience and then that audience member could maybe go on to do something that would change the world. That it's not the art itself, but the sort of effect it might have on someone. Martin Higwin's book, This Life, is a visionary work of social philosophy and one of the best books I read this past year. Because freedom here, very important, is not like to be free is not to be free from all constraints. To be free is to be able to like see yourself in what you do, to identify with what you do. Right. Uh, and also to be able to see yourself and your commitments in all the relations on which you depend and the institutions on which you depend. And you can affirm that like this actually reflects what I'm committed to. When people talk about like, well, you know, so many human beings might become irrelevant or useless when technology develops, then we should ask ourselves, like, what is our conception of relevance and <laughs> right. value and use such that when you're not needed to produce commodities, that then you're irrelevant? That should tell us that there's something wrong and contradictory about the way we understand what our lives are for, right. what is meaningful, what is relevant what is useful, because uh, a human life is not for the sake of producing commodities or for the sake of profit, it's, for the sa it's an end in itself. What's wrong with capitalism is not that it made us abandon some more innocent form of life or some primitive communism right. that we should get back to. Rather, it's a matter of what have we learned about ourselves and the conditions of our freedom precisely by virtue of the capitalist mode of production. Right. And what have we learned about value through that, through painful historical experience, and seeing that the commitment to freedom and equality that in a certain way have been made possible by capitalism can't be fulfilled by that form of life, and thereby it requires its overcoming. Born in London, actor Amel Amin went back to his family's Jamaican roots in a deep way for Idris Elba's film directorial debut, Yardi. I loved this conversation for reasons that I hope will be obvious. So I grew up 
as a British Jamaican, but certainly a Jamaican or Caribbean person. But I never Surrounded spoke, by Jamaican people. Absolutely, but I never spoke the language. Mm. And so just being able to speak the language makes me feel good. I'm like, yeah, I can talk the thing and, you know. You had to actually go back and, like, learn some of the phrases that... that... I mean, all of it, yeah, essentially. Yeah, I had yeah, to start yeah, at the okay. beginning, you know. Right. It's like to have the confidence to do the Jamaican accent, but also to speak Patois, mm. which, like Shakespeare, it lends itself to a different version of English. My grandma says something, you know, your mouth run dry like water puss, <laughs> you know. So she's basically talking about how the cat goes down and it drinks from the bowl. And there's so many different phrasings that just is readily available. And they don't know, or my grandma doesn't know, she's doing a version of high art metaphor and simile. <laughs> right, she's right. just it's doing just... her culture. But it's definitely in there. There's a poetry to the way that they speak. Let's talk a little bit about that sound culture. So this was like an informal situation in the movie where you have people in Jamaica and then later people in London that are rival DJs, yeah, a rival bit like DJ. you had in hip hop here in it's New exactly York. Exactly the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of focus on these sound systems. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like making sure the records were a certain thing, you know, making sure you had the best cut, not messing up, the, mashing the records up. It just really taught me a lot about that during the filming because I didn't know the exact DJs, you know, but like sound clashing, it was such a badge of honor to be a DJ and to be an MC. And actually the DJ was more popular than the MC, much like in hip hop initially. But I had to learn. So the MC is almost like a hype man or it's something. It's a hype man, yeah, yeah. Just up front, kind of getting exactly, the crowd going or Exactly, exactly. But then they became... And art was what kind of was birthed from it. And chatting and having your lyrics was such a big thing. When I went to Jamaica and I lived there for three months before I started the movie and I went to somewhere called Dub Club and Dub Club gives you that vibe of something that was previously existed. Authentic. Exactly, like, yeah. you know, where they're chatting on the mic and they, you know, hyping up the crowd. Chatting is like mostly improvised. Exactly. Not totally, right? Not it's totally. Like you have bits of phrases in your head that yeah, you then Yeah, and of... that you keep, exactly. So it's like you piece together this, you know, and, and um, there's different f things. Like something didn't end up in the movie, but it's like, you know, it's like, yo, Blair Lloyd, the number one song that made the body go round, round, round. Right now, we end up on this thing, you know, a pure vibe about to swing, you know. All the girls, them, all the man, them come together and peace and harmony so we can vibe. I <laughs> stew! Because, you know, say the vibe set right long time ago. When I say lift up my chalice and the full up percent, see? Real bad man say my gun never empty. Really have man, I don't know about no yardy. Kill a sound boy with my eye known army. Black lime in a dealer red cat. Your damn life, you said me can't chat. The process of doing the film, I, I went on a, a real kind of interesting journey of, of method acting and discovering what that truly meant. And it's something very different for everyone, but for me, it really meant accessing a part of self that is dormant, playing it up, and then living in the world from a cerebral point of view, and then making sure my environment constantly push my mental space into that world. It's crazy what the what can happen to the mind is what I'm saying. Just from when you're pushing your mind to do something as the actor and you're pushing your mind and then you're living in, in an accent and you're interacting as a person and people in the world are meeting you as that person. Mm. And so they are telling you. So if I met you today, I was like, what? Well, yeah, right, yeah, man, everything, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, well, yeah, I just deal with this thing, you know. And you would have a, a reaction that would confirm a truth that I'm perpetuating to you. Do you get what I'm saying? And that sort of teaches you as the character who you are exactly. as well. Like even exactly. though you are, you're the one that's creating it, it, it's, it yeah. it's created in dialogue with the and, world. And exactly, a dialogue happens. 
And continuing with our theme, Jamaican writer Marlon James won the Man Booker Prize for his book, A Brief History of Seven Killings. This year, he published Black Leopard, Red Wolf, the first in a trilogy of hallucinatory epic fantasy novels anchored in African mythology. One big difference, I think, between a lot of African stories and a lot of Western stories is that Western stories, the narrator establishes authority. I'm telling you the story, so it must be true. Mm. And we believe that. That's, that's just how we are. That's how we were raised. In, in a lot of African storytelling, it's a trickster that's telling the story. It's a deceiver that's telling the story. And you already know that. Gotcha. So you already have to read it with a little skepticism. You already have to read it where, you know what, I'm not going to believe you. Mm. Um, but entertain me anyway. And so the whole idea of what is truth is something the reader or the listener has to decide. And this trilogy, you know, is not a part one, part two, part three. It's three different witnesses telling the same story. And there's no part four coming where I go, oh, this is what really happened. The reader is going to have to pick. A lot of that, <laughs> that type of fantasy universe, which I grew up in and I love and I still am devoted to, I had to let go of. Even things like um, how we associate night. Yeah. In the book and in a lot of the African cultures, midnight is called the noon of the dead. Mm. I say that to anybody born in the West without giving context, they already supplied context. Mm -hmm. You think of the witching hour, you think of zombies, you think of ghosts, you think of spirits. Right. Whereas noon of the dead is like that scene in Black Panther where T'Challa goes back and meets his dad. Right. It's gorgeous. Everybody's a shape-shifting panther in a tree and they come down and, and your really, really cool uncle comes to talk to you. So there's a connection with the dead that's, right. a, that's a comfortable connection. That has as nothing to, to do with eeriness. Yeah. It's not spooky at all. It has nothing yeah. to do with that. I mean, chances are your ancestors way cooler than your parents. So all of those things we attach to dark, the witching hour, all of this stuff, evil, right. is totally out of whack with um, a lot of African mythology. In fact, a lot of them, it's high noon that's scary. I can see you having been into heavy metal. That makes I, sense. Listen, yeah. there was a documentary that the, the church used to send to campuses all over the country. It's, it's, I think it's online. You can find it on YouTube, Highway to Hell. And it had things like backward masking and all these things. <laughs> and everybody in the room watching this documentary, you know, everybody was crying and calling out to Jesus. Uh. I was taking notes. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that's what ACDC sounds like? I left that documentary about ACDC, about Wasp, about Slayer. Who the hell that is Wasp? About Slayer. I bought Faster Pussycat. I bought, listen, I, that, nice. that, God bless, God bless the Jesus. Because, you know, he, I, I became a total metal fan on a, because of a documentary that was telling me not to go after metal. Yeah, like any kid in the world in the eighties. We I, I'm yep. convinced if you're an eighties yep. kid, you had the exact same eighties everywhere. Where was it? Where Beat was Street, I? Uh, oh my god, I saw Beat Street in the theater. Oh yeah. Everybody I, say Ramo. Um how about wait, wait, wait. Oh. Um damn that song it was UTFO. I had this like what, two, Roxanne, Roxanne. Yeah, with Roxanne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Roxanne, Roxanne, the lady Roxanne. devastator, and make you feel hotter than yeah. it is in Jamaica. Yeah, but then Roxanne she had to kill that. And then you had the final Roxanne's a man. <laughs> oh my god, I remember that one. Roxanne's a man. <laughs> yeah, we, the, we, we. What was that? That was summer of what? Eighty five. It was before the show. It was eighty five. Yeah, I remember that because before that, when I thought of hip hop, I thought of break dancing. After that, when I thought of hip hop, I thought of rap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that mm -hmm. is so off topic. 
Terry Gilliam started out as the cartoonist for Monty Python and has gone on to become the beloved director of epic films including Time Bandits, Twelve Monkeys, and his latest, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. You talk about not wanting to get too successful, that sometimes it's actually helpful to have your career go mm. in waves yeah. because you want the freedom to be left alone to do what you want to do. You it's know? also the sense to be able to hold on. To it. One day I might be really successful. <laughs> It's hope, because if you're suddenly successful and everything is going well, I actually am frightened about liking things too much. Ah. So I kind of protect myself. I don't want to love things too much. I want to keep a safe distance. Because You strike me as someone who does have that tendency. Yeah. Though. You probably I'm, I'm, do love things I'm a things coward too much. because I love so much, <laughs> but the fall is too great. Yeah. I want to keep the fall a shorter distance. And so if I aspire too high or love too much, the, oh, the pain of the fall is what I'm thinking about always. I rail against the limitations that are always thrust upon me, whether they are time or money or lack of a talent, any of those things. And yet it gets my adrenaline going. Right. And when my adrenaline gets going, it seems to take over all my double thinking, all my concerns. It just drives me like a, a, a drug addict. <laughs> and I love adrenaline because to me, it's the business of stop thinking and just do. And hopefully if you've prepared, if you've got enough stuff inside, enough clarity of what you're trying to do, yeah. you can find ways around. Brick walls I find interesting because they block the path that I've been planning for some time. And I used to bang my head endlessly against them, but I've gotten better at finding a way around them or over them or under them. Apparently this is well known. There are two kinds of Muppets. Chaos Muppets and Order Muppets in Jim Henson's universe, okay? Some whose job is to create chaos and others whose job is to create order. And so I was wondering on the way over here, which are you? Are you a Chaos Muppet or an Order Muppet? <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think the chaos, I'm probably the chaos Muppet that feeds on order. Or maybe yeah. I'm the Order Muppet that needs chaos to survive. I'm both things. I think... It's what always intrigues me. It's like the, the, the Hindu god of Kali, who is both the creator and the destroyer. Right. And it's this conflict is what makes life interesting. It's what we all go through. And that's in the case of Coyote. Look at Coyote, yeah, the dreamer, dreamer, the fantasist, the guy who is imagining a more noble, beautiful world like the world of chivalry. And yet... There's Sancho by him, who is the other half of the Coyote story. He's right. the man with his feet on the ground, the realist, the pragmatist, and they're trapped together on their journey. Jeffrey Israel is an old friend of mine, a professor of religious studies at Williams College and the author of the book Living with Hate in American Politics and Religion. He's trying to help us live better together with the freedom to be ourselves. So that gets kind of to an interesting tension that you talk about in the book between progress and memory that especially for historically oppressed people progress always runs the risk or is in some way in a sense potentially threatening to erase memory that's right and i have paradigmatically in my mind for instance uh, native american groups that will want to mourn when others are celebrating thanksgiving right and i think the america that i envision doesn't just sort of accept that as an unfortunate necessity. Uh, necessity. No, right, right. The, 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 it should be precisely a place where people can robustly mourn 
what was a catastrophe for their sense of who they are and their uh, historical consciousness. And that the kind of country that we should strive to be would be a welcoming place mm. for people to have that time and space to really dig in to their contrary, antagonistic, even perverse memories. And that progress can't mean that those memories are erased. Because what that means is that you're actually not invited to the progressive ideal right. if you're going to hold on to your resentment about what had been done to your people however many years ago. This is part of what we're doing when we're teaching the humanities, right. right? Which is to say, cultivating your capacity to exercise interpretive judgment, right? We don't know where it all ends up, but we can live in a life together where we're making judgments that are not necessarily true or false or even correct or incorrect or right or wrong, right? But they are judgments that on balance attempt to account for our values that go along a range related to aesthetics and claims about knowledge but also claims about the kind of life we want to live together and political values. We need to make interpretive judgments about these things. It will be messy and we won't always get it right. And sometimes we'll feel like we're allowing a space for play. But what we're really doing is allowing an alternative trajectory or strategy for a certain kind of instrumental politics. Gotcha, right? Yeah. And, and I don't know exactly how to do it in every case, but what I'm trying to make tangible is the project of trying to do that, dif make that differentiation. And erring on the side of uh, tolerance. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. I think that we do this all the time. We have all sorts of nasty, perverse things that are part of the ways we like to thrive, the little ways that we like to sit with ourselves, right? And with right, little groups right. and be unadmirable, <laughs> right? And be in ways that we could never explain to anyone else right. in a way that they would get it and endorse it and do anything but want to condemn it, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we do. So the goal should be not to somehow eradicate dressing up like a Civil War soldier and to do Civil War reenactment, but rather to raise up the value of being able to do that simultaneously with the capacity to see every other person living within the United States as a vulnerable, dependent human animal sure. who deserves a life with others where they can exercise the full range of capabilities that are befitting a dignified human life, right? And I believe that people can actually do those two things at the same time. Eve Ensler, author of The Vagina Monologues, is a warrior for the liberation and well-being of women. Her latest book, The Apology, takes on the soul-restoring task of apologizing to herself in the voice of her dead father for his years of horrific abuse. What's always been most interesting to me, probably because I grew up in an environment where, you know, I lived in an upper middle class community with, with literally a white picket fence around my house. <laughs> and everyone was telling me every day how grateful I should be for this beautiful family because my father was incredibly handsome. My mother was beautiful and they were utterly charming. And yet inside was a nightmare. And I think my quest in life is to tell the truth. Right. It's, it's to match the inside and the outside. It's to say what's really going on and why. I look, I think about 
sex and I think about sex education and I think about the terror in this country to talk about sex, right? Right. And address sex and tell our children about sex and tell our children how beautiful sex is and what a great, is it the best part of your life for God's <laughs> sakes? I mean, is there anything, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's why we live because it's our life force expressing itself and our desire to connect and love and feel and wrestle. And instead we make children feel guilty and bad. If they touch themselves, they get banished and they're told they're sinful or they're wrong. As opposed to saying, wow, you have this beautiful body. You have, you have a life force pulsing through you and let's talk about it. Right. If someone touches you inappropriately, that's not good. You come to me. Right. If somebody, instead, we ill prepare them. We leave them highly unprotected. So they go out into the world, whether it's the church, whether it's the gym and it's girls and boys and horrible things get done to them and they have no capacity and no language and no pathway to talk about this with people who could and should be protecting them. Language changes everything. It's like saying the word vagina. If you can't say it, (laughs) you can't see it. If you can't see it, you can't talk about it. If you can't talk about it, a lot can happen at to it in the dark without your permission. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing about silence. When we when we, we tell ourselves this private thing, usually private means owned by white men, to be honest with mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. It's under the auspices of white men. They have power over that. It's their domain. Right. They have determined this to be private, right? right. Um, I mean, you look at so many of the scandals that occurred, like Harvey Weinstein or Cosby, or, and the numbers of women that were violated, and then the pervasive silence of the enablers around those people because they were in those powerful men kingdoms, right? And I think part of what equalizing does and part of what helps bring people into their power is breaking that silence because you break their grip on that power. Look, one of the things I learned in this book, like what is an apology, right? Right. Yeah, I think that's important. I think it's really critical. I think it's a humbling I think it's becoming vulnerable. I think it's an equalizer. I think it's a step-by-step detailed accounting of what you did, because I believe the liberation is in the details. Sure. It's feeling what your victim felt, opening your heart to what your deeds did and how they impacted not only her life, but all the people around her. It's then looking at your own history and going, what happened to me that made me a kind of man that could bring me here? What in my childhood? What in the culture? What in the, in the story of the world has made me this kind of man? And then it's indicating that you have done enough self-reflection and work on yourself that it's very clear you wouldn't possibly do this again. The more we separate from our sexuality, the more perverse, the more distorted. And I think in the case of men, the more they are separated from their tenderness, their vulnerability, their hearts, their tears, their, their questions, the more violent they become. Tracy Edwards is just an all-around inspiring human being. She was the captain of Maiden, the first all-female crewed yacht to race around the world, and the star of the beautiful documentary Maiden that came out this year from Sony Pictures Classics. You came back to England and, and basically these are pleasure boats and all kinds of boats that are just coming yeah. to support you, hundreds to cheer you on. Yeah, them. hundreds of them. And then coming into Ocean <laughs> Village with 50,000 people. That was, we were, we were like rabbits in the headlights, you know. And you've also been at sea for three weeks, so it's, it's such a shock. You know, you almost feel a bit defensive. And then to walk to the yacht club from the boat for our reception should have been 10 minutes. It took over an hour. Wow. Because people just, 
you know, and it was extraordinary and very un-British. Right, the British right. do not normally do things right. like, can I touch you? Can I hold, can I shake your hand or can I give you a rose? But this was a just this extraordinary outpouring. And that's when I realized Maiden was so much more than women sailing around the world. Maiden represented to anyone who's ever been told that they can't do something, they don't fit in somewhere, they're the wrong color, the wrong religion, the wrong gender, that that doesn't matter. That if you, yeah. you know, you can work through the stuff and just ignore it and, and keep going. That's what this told me. I speak to young girls who've seen the film and I talk to them afterwards and they say exactly what I hoped they would, which is I don't actually have to be perfect <laughs> to get through life and do amazing things. And you're like, yes, that that would be my message to every young woman out there. You know, I think there's an unrealistic expectation upon women to wear the right things, to say the right things, to behave in a certain way as well as striving for your dream and working hard for your goals. And it's, as I say, unrealistic and it's messy, yeah. you know, and you, and you have to just dive in and get on with it. Yeah, there were times when you were essentially debilitated with depression and that's where a crew really matters. That's, oh, yeah. that's where the cohesion of the crew matters. At that point, others have to step up both to support you and to keep the thing going. Yeah, by the time we crossed the start line, We'd pretty much been together for two years on and off. Um, we'd built our own boat, pretty much. Right. Uh, we had battled so hard to get to the start line. So when we crossed the start line, we were a cohesive, bonded, strong, powerful team. Hmm. Some of the other boats had just taken on crew the day before. What was a disadvantage, which was the struggle, actually became a huge advantage. Because when we crossed that start line, we were battle-hardened and ready to go. My mum always used to say, if you don't like the way the world looks, change it. Don't moan. Don't whine about it. Change right. it. So I thought, how can I, how can I change it? So I thought, well, if I put my own project together, I can choose myself as navigator. That'll work. And then I thought, and if I put an all-female crew together, we can prove at the same time that women can race around the world. So it kind of came together in that way. Um, I think if I'd started off with this big, you know, women's empowerment thing, I, I might not have made it. But because it was so practical yeah. and logical and a step towards my goals was quite selfish, I went into it with a certain agenda and a certain frame of mind. And so therefore, when this wave of hostility hit me, I was immovable because this is what I want to do. Later on, the more this stuff happened, I became more and more, okay, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than right, Maiden. Right. We have got to do this for every woman everywhere, not just in sailing, but for everything. Franz de Waal is a primatologist and one of the foremost researchers into the emotions of animals other than humans. There's a difference there that chimps are, tend to be xenophobic, whereas yeah. bonobos are xenophilic. Humans, uh, would you say, are both? Humans can be both, and there has been a tendency to emphasize the xenophobic tendencies of humans, and of course we live in a time where there's a lot of tensions between racial groups. Sure. It's almost as if the tensions that we used to have between nations have now shifted to within nations between different... Identity groups, Yeah, so, yeah. so we, we have shifted the conflict there, and we clearly have a lot of potential for xenophobia, but xenophobia can also be promoted culturally or politically. You can have political leaders who promote it. Uh, you can have religions who promote it. And so uh, I think it's a flexible characteristic. And uh, there's a lot of 
evidence, for example, from the anthropologists that hunter-gatherer cultures are not nearly as xenophobic as people would like them make, make them out to be because they have lots of networks and connections outside of their group. So people travel through the territories right. of others, they trade with each other, they marry with each other, they have lovers in other places. And so um, this whole idea that we are naturally inherently xenophobic, uh, I'm not 100% on board with that. So yes, the body is extremely important and we have a tendency in the West to diminish the body. The mind is strong and the, the flesh is weak. <laughs> that, that's the way we look at things and we want to push the body away. And that's why you have men who believe that after death we should freeze their brains right. and then at some point we will upload the brain into a computer uh, because they don't need the body at all. We, we just need the mind and the digital information from the mind and that will make you happy. But I think happiness will not exist without the body. I think the happiness is a visceral emotion probably. And so I'm not sure why people think that they will have happy lives ever after. We did one-time research at the zoo. We took data standing among the public about what they say about animals and how they react to the chimpanzees. And what we found is that the kids, they see everything that the chimps do and they interpret it correctly. So if the chimps are fighting, the kids are worried and they say they're fighting. Or if the chimps are playing and tickling, they say, oh, they're playing. Uh, the parents are the ones who, who laugh about everything that the chimps do and they may be in the middle of the most fierce fight and they keep laughing and they think chimpanzees are so funny. And I think what is happening there is they have been indoctrinated that we humans we are different and not only different we are superior to these animals and so you can laugh about all the stupid things that they do you don't need to watch because it's always funny what they do edith hall is a classicist whose book aristotle's way makes aristotle's approach to a life well lived accessible to a modern audience Amongst all the other skills people have got to learn, and he's a great believer in specialism from a certain age, you find out what you're good at. So everybody we were doing advanced cookery, advanced philosophy, advanced okay. car making, depending on what their thing is. But yeah. all of them, regardless of whether they're doing car making, cookery or philosophy or learning to play the piano, because that's what yeah. they're good at, would all be discussing together civic and moral issues that will make them good citizens, partners, lovers, and parents. You start off with the fact with you're an animal, which is a great relief because it means that he, as you said, wants people to have sex lives and eat nice food and, and look after themselves and have, have pleasure because he sees in animals, pleasure is a drive to good things like reproduction, survival, right. that sort of thing. So you start out with that idea that it's perfectly fine to be an animal and a physical being. But then he thinks, what is it that we can do that we don't think most an other animals can do? He's trying to narrow down as a scientist empirically by mm. um, processes of elimination, what is specially human. We have been given far more of the gear sticks at the control board than most mm. other animals. So you then start to try to decide, given whatever gifts you have or have not been given completely randomly at birth, <laughs> um, which ones to work on to improve, which ones to work on to minimize, and right. how to become, as Oprah says, the best possible you. I genuinely do feel like a secular missionary, though. I do think that if everybody in the world got a basic training in just fundamental ethics, there is, it's just a basic set of 
intellectual toolkits that you can teach people basics of logic, basics of how to make a decision, basics of trying to figure out what your own best potential is, basics of taking the fear out of death, these sorts of things. We could make a much, much better world. And he was extremely interested, as you know, in whole societies as well as individual happiness, because you can do this with any religious background, provided you're not a fanatic. I mean, it it is not compatible with fanaticism (laughs) of any kind. So we could even build a sort of world secular ethics that would help us, which is we need so badly in the 21st century, a secular ethics that transcends your ethnic religious background. Lama Rod Owens is a spiritual teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He's one of the co-authors of the book Radical Dharma, which considers Buddhist teachings in the context of social justice struggles around race and gender. We are all embodied differently. We have different bodies, different all kinds of identity markers, you know, that are judged by people around us. And like we have a different level of safety. You know, I'm like a large black man, right. you know, and, you know, I don't you know say my weight because ladies don't say that. But like, <laughs> I, you know, I can walk through the world and walk through the streets of New York in particular. And like people pretty much leave me alone. Then I have You're safe. other yeah. friends who are like visibly trans or female friends who are just like, and this is my reality. Right. I'm always being harassed. I have to do these things. Right. You know, and that's the the kind of conversations that we can have, you know, if we just open our minds to simply say, you know what, I'm having this experience, but why do I think everyone else is having this experience? In the world, and that can help me to actually listen to and believe people yeah. when they're saying, "No, this is my experience in the world." Well, and there's the reality of urgency and violence, you know, that oppressed communities are experiencing in real time, and that informs how we may relate to whom we identify as the oppressor. There's this energy, this surge, this like, get your shit together. Like, I'm dying, get it together. (laughs) And it usually... Yeah, we don't have time for you to process. We don't have time, but we we don't (laughs) at the same time have a choice. Hmm. Because what I'm interested in is deep systematic change. And for me, yes, I'm trained as an activist. I came up through activism, then I got into contemplative practice in Buddhism. And what I understand now is that real change doesn't happen until change in the inside begins to happen. Masculinity is not inherently toxic. Patriarchy is toxic. It has impacted how masculinity has expressed itself. To undo patriarchy, you have to start looking at how patriarchy has impacted masculinity and then start working with other men and masculine performing people to actually start grieving that, Mm. that violence. You have to let that energy go within groups so we can actually stop forcing other people to do emotional labor for us. Elif Shafak is the most widely read female novelist in Turkey and a brilliant chronicler of the tensions at the crossroads of the spirit and society. I think in general, in Turkey, we are a society of collective amnesia. And I see a lot of widespread Mm. urban amnesia when I look at Istanbul. You know, you walk by a very old house, 
that is no longer inhabited. What happened exactly in that house, on that street, in that graveyard? We never ask these questions. Oftentimes we can't even read the old script. But all I'm trying to say is there are lots of ruptures and our connection with the past is full of ruptures. I think that widespread amnesia is a problem and memory is a responsibility, not in order to get stuck in the past, of course not, but to learn from the past, both the beauties, but also we should be able to face the dark chapters in our history Mm. and to be able to come to grips with that, sometimes to grieve and mourn together and hopefully never ever again to make the same mistakes. Wherever politics is aggressive, very male-dominated and top-down divisive, I think women tend to become very divided as well. But if when this happens in patriarchal countries and if women are divided, the only thing that benefits from this is patriarchy itself. Sure. Right. So I'm always longing for a new women's movement that brings on board women from very different backgrounds. And some of these women, you know, might have different worldviews or views about faith and identity, but they have lots in common. And also I'm longing for a new women's movement that always goes hand in hand with LGBT rights and a new women's movement that talks about, rather than men versus women, talks about masculinity and how the construction of masculinity can be a straitjacket. It is obvious to me that in patriarchal societies, women are unhappy, but men are unhappy as well, especially young men, especially young men who do not conform to the given hegemonic description of masculinity. If you don't conform form, then your life as a young man can also be very, very tough. And sometimes women can take part in shunning young men who do not conform to that masculinity. Therefore, this is much more complex. And we definitely need a new narrative that brings men on board and and shows people that wherever there's patriarchy, there's inequality, wherever there's inequality, there's unhappiness. The primary thing to remember, and I find this very important, is that Until recently, many people assumed that some parts of the world were solid lands. They were safe, steady, you know, democratic. They had already achieved egalitarianism and they didn't need to worry anymore about women's rights, minority rights, LGBTQ rights or freedom of speech because they were already there. And some other parts of the world were regarded as liquid, like Turkey. And people thought these were the places where you needed to worry about freedom of speech. But I think after the year 2016, after Brexit happened, after Trump vote, and also after the seeing the rise of populist nationalistic movements in country after country across Europe as well, perhaps we can say more and more people in the West too realize there is no such thing as solid countries. In fact, we're all living in liquid times, like the late Zygmunt Bauman had told us. And I think none of us can take our rights for granted. In other words, history doesn't have to move in a linear way. Sometimes it draws circles, sometimes countries can go backwards. And perhaps democracy is far more fragile ecosystem than we initially assumed. So we have to put more effort in order to keep liberal democracies alive, because now we know they can die. Robert McFarland's book Underground is one of the most beautiful, moving, intellectually rich pieces of writing I have ever read. Enough said. I argue for Deep Time as this astonishing, wonder-making, 
ethically sharpening force. Once we see right. it, we're like, look, it's so unlikely. We exist. We should not exist <laughs> right. in these expanses of universal <laughs> planetary time. But here we are. What are we making of this? And what are we leaving behind? And I think that point for me where deep time suddenly pivots and is not just something that is behind us, but is ahead of us. And then intergenerational justice, if we want to call it that, which is so active in climate politics, youth politics, Greta Thunberg, the school strikes, extinction rebellion in my country, climate emergencies mm. being declared, divestment movements. These are all really deep time politics, future deep time politics at work. And it's exciting to me to see that beginning to happen. But in this cave some 3,000 years ago, other people made really strenuous journeys without Gore-Tex <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and, and without tents. And they made their journeys to this cave because it, to do so crossed two or even three thresholds. They came past the Maelstrom probably in a boat. They crossed the threshold, which is the mouth of the cave. They crossed the second threshold, which is where light gives way to dark. And then these people who lived unbelievably arduous marginal lives, um, not long after the, the glaciers had retreated from that particular space, and they were obviously all over Norway still, they made art. In the darkness, they made art in a place where the sea had, over hundreds of thousands of years, crashed a space in which art could be made. And all of these things, I realized, were the co-authors of that art. Mm. There, there were the early makers, there was the space, there were the journeys that had been taken, there was the water running down the rock, there was the, the living history of the way the rock had interacted with the hematite, which was itself a mineral origin. It's not as though when we encounter something like that, we are stepping into an, an air-conditioned art gallery. This was a massively dynamic moment of a kind of cosmic, authoring of an art event. Claustrophobia experienced vicariously loses little of its power. Your breathing starts to change. Your heart rate starts to change. This is just you sitting under an open sky reading a book. What an extraordinary... Vertigo doesn't have no, this. right. And I suppose the last thing I would say about claustrophobia is that, to expand outwards again, is that it came to seem to me a distinctive affect of the Anthropocene. Hmm that how often we feel it depends on who we are and where we are and how vulnerable we are. But as a species, the tunnel is narrowing, the ceiling is mm. dropping, time and space are closing down. And I don't know if you feel this, but we're some of the most lucky people on the planet, but still I feel that sense of the epoch closing down around us. But for a long time before we took flight as a species, the mountaintop was the place where we could be most godlike, mm. where we could stand and look down through time and across space. And there was a Greek word for this, the kataskopos, the, the looker down. Um, and for a long time, I was very drawn to that idea that we might ascend to a, this is the Enlightenment project, basically, we might ascend to a point of total knowledge. Um, but then, and really for the last 20 years, I've been so much more excited by ignorance. That was a kind of palate cleanser, a sorbet, a sprig of parsley, a bit of pickled ginger before we dive into a new pool of books and ideas for fall 2019. We'll start next week with a little something I brought back from my summer travels, a conversation with Turkish chef and food ethnographer Musa Da Deviren with my wife Demet translating. It's got sounds of Istanbul, coffee ground reading, a little bit of everything.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.